Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 170, week 170, volume 170, number fucking 170. Hey, going, guys? How's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Dave of Shinto Katana, and that will be coming up later in the show. Let's kick things off with feedback, questions, what's been going on. A lot of positive, excellent feedback after last week's show. People asking for more podcaster-style crossover shows. So basically, guests who are hosts of podcast shows. Definitely in the works. Definitely looking at it. And you will be seeing some popping up along the way. So thank you to everyone that consumed last week's show. Thank you to everyone for the positive feedback. And just thank you for all of you as always, for supporting the Mosh Zone. So that's enough of the ramblings, that's enough of the jibber-jabber. Let's get into the main part of the show. This week, I got to sit down with Dave of Shinto Katana. The first thing I got to say, thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. So who are Shinto Katana? For those unaware and uneducated, They're an Aussie mosh band that formed around 2005, broke up around 2014, but they started looking at reforming to do some live shows around 2019 and 2020. The band have had one demo and three albums to their name, and as I said style-wise, mosh band. But don't let that deter you in case you think mosh ain't your thing. This band is fucking sick. They are Aussie heavy hitters, Sydney boys, one of those bands that I think if you were around the live scene in Australia in the early 2000s, you loved them. You couldn't get enough of them. Now obviously you can guess I'm a big fucking fan. And Dave is a fucking legend. Great dude, great conversation. I really, really enjoy this chat. I hope you do too. That chat with Dave is coming up now. So everyone gets the same start off, and that is, do you remember an artist or a musician that opened your world to music existing? Now, my example is at the age of five, I loved Aerosmith. I don't know why, but Aerosmith was my band. Was there a band for you that started off music as a journey? So my mum always tells me, and tells everyone who'll listen that I could sing songs of Roy Orbison before I could talk when I was a, when I was a baby. So I'd, I'd have to say that, but my earliest memory of like really sticking my teeth into something was, I think when I was 10 years old, my, I got a CD player in my room and my brother bought me the black album, Metallica. So, and I just remember playing that until every song was skipping because I'd just thrash the shit out of it. <laughs> So I guess, yeah, I guess you could say Roy Orbison and Metallica. <laughs> I mean, what what about Metallica? I mean, because it's quite a difference from Roy to Metallica. I mean, yeah. what, was it the fact that you were kind of shown by someone that was kind of impressionable to you or what drew you in? Well, yeah, so I had a few, few guys in my family, my brother and his friends, they were listening to Metallica when I was, um, when I was in the pool with them one day, they had Metallica playing. And I remember I was young, but I do remember paying attention to them all talking about it. And how much they loved it, but um, I, I must have said something in there and then because I remember my next birthday. That's when he got me the black album. So, yeah, 
it's quite an understandable band to get onto. But I mean, from there, what what were you like as a kid with discovering music? I mean, were you a sponge and you went out on your own and developed what you liked, or were you still kind of going off what people recommended or showed you? No, from there, from there, I um I probably branched out on my own quite a bit. I knew obviously I found a love for heavy riffs. Mm-hmm. And um and then I think when I was younger, I watched a lot of wrestling too. And, you know, <laughs> wrestling was super new metal in the early 2000s, late 90s. So I would have picked up on some new metal bands there. And then I think in high school, naturally, I met a few people through, you know, similar tastes in music, which um, then they would show me stuff. I could show them stuff. And then I think, you know, I went down the punk, the punk rock route. A lot of guys I know skated, listened to punk, so they showed me a lot of stuff there and it flourished. Funnily enough, I went out on my own because I, the first time I remember knowing that I, I liked my own stuff was 18 Visions. I, I started listening to them and a lot of my friends weren't super into that, but I knew, no, nah, I don't give a fuck about them. I, I think this is rad. And funny, funny thing is they just recently released a cover cover album with Sad But True covered on it, so it's been <laughs> a there. That's pretty cool. But, um, yeah, no, I definitely had my own taste for, for many years and I knew that. I knew that. I liked a lot of stuff that my friends liked because I built friendships based on like similar taste in music, but but I definitely copped a lot of shit for liking music that my friends didn't like as well. So I mean, what was what was you know high school like for you? You know, I'm you know without giving too much away to listeners, you know, you are a, a Sparky now, or for yeah. anyone who's not Australian, that means electrician. So mm-hmm. um, in school, what were your focuses like? Were you completely just all about music were you kind of dabbling in a bit of everything like what was your path like during high school early high school really like a lot of my friends and i like i said we like we we bonded over some music and stuff but a couple of my close friends we were like bonded over watching pro wrestling and fucking stone cold steve austin shit like that but um but now later later on in high school very very much music i um Never Shinto was the first band I did that played shows, but you know I used to jam with some friends in punk bands and stuff that never really did anything. But now I was heavily focused in music. I um, I guess, yeah, like you know, it was the era of discmans and shit. Everyone mm-hmm. had a fucking discman and CD wallets and stuff, and you'd be in class and during class if you weren't listening, you'd be swapping fucking CDs so you could go home and burn it and mm-hmm. fucking swap back the next day. It was, it was all about, you know, that was, as you said, it was the time where you, you discovered your own stuff, but you were always also reliant on that circle that you were kind of developing for, you know, the give and take. But the other thing would also been the local, you know, quote unquote scene. When did you start getting out to live shows? Like what was the age bracket that you started getting out? Probably 13, 14, I started going to local shows, you know, um, I had a few friends that would take me down to the local PCYC. They'd be like, oh, there's all these local pop punk bands playing down there. And we'd go on, it'd sort of be just a hangout. And, um, but, you know, at the time I thought like, fuck, that is cool. Like, look, like they, these bands would be playing in front of like fucking 50 people, but I'd be like, that's awesome. I'd love to do that. Um, what about, you know, when did the live setting and your passion start to kind of shift gears into being something that it was, I want to really give this a crack. Do you remember a moment? Was there a moment that you decided I want to really pursue singing or music in general? Um, so I'm not sure if you know, but originally I was the um, bass player of Shinto. For the mm-hmm. first three shows, I played bass. 
And that was sort of just um, my best mate played drums. I had a bass guitar. I learned fucking very minimal, like like basic minimum of what you'd have to learn on bass to do like a heavy fucking hardcore band. And we'd just jam and shit like that. And um, sort of, you know, there was always like, oh, I'd be sick if we could do like write songs, play shows, get some dudes involved and that would be mad. But I, I don't, can't remember a time when I realized this is viable because I think we, we wrote a couple of songs. We put them on MySpace though. They were fucking trash, definitely trash. <laughs> but um, one of my old friends that I grew up with was running a venue called Embassy Hotel in Penrith, and he had a bunch of like um, like emo bands playing. I think fucking Angela's Dish and fuck, mm. who else played? Kiss Chasey. Oh. And he, yeah, they were, I think they were headlining. He was like, man, I fucking I have an opening spot. Do you guys want to play? It's like next week. And like we were like, holy shit. Like actually playing a show this isn't something we thought we'd kind of do but we have to do it and i think after that one show like obviously the nerves going into that were crazy but after that one show it was like fuck this this is what i want to do i want to do this all the time i'm obsessed with it fuck you mentioned kiss chasey i went to university with two of the guys they were they were crazy like they were the most blink 182 obsessed guys i've ever met (laughs) Like they would, they dressed like Tom and that. Like they were like weird yeah, dudes. So that's quite a weird lineup to throw like early Shinto. It was weird. It was weird. And um, it's I don't think half the reason Shinto worked back then in the in the Penrith area was that you know there was such a big market for like heavy mosh metal fucking bands. Like um, we had a lot of friends going to shows. Like you know, Parkway were only just starting, so mm-hmm. Byron had Parkway, Adelaide had Prom Queen, like. Queensland had bands like Wish for Wings and Carpathian was sort of coming out of Melbourne. But there was nothing in Sydney like that. It was like, you know, your last nerve taking sides, a lot of bands like that. But I don't remember there being a real heavy fucking mosh band. And we sort of got thrown onto this emo bill. And a lot of our friends that we'd met at shows fucking came out and it just fucking like from the first opening note, there was just a huge mosh pit. And it was like, you know, so many people were clamoring for a band like that at the time and there wasn't one. So it was kind of cool that we just got thrown onto a bill and it worked. Yeah, you are right. I mean, Shinto were definitely became the band from Sydney that were known for being, you know, quote unquote mosh. But I mean, yeah. were you guys, you know, you, you talked earlier about like your musical kind of influence and like, you know, startup. How did you guys figure out what you wanted to do stylistically? Because... I mean, if bands aren't really around you doing much mosh elements, what bands were you drawing inspiration from? It was very much the dawn of the internet, you know, like mm-hmm. it was like early MySpace and stuff like that. But I remember there was a web a website called um, hxcmp3.com mm. and I'd just fuck it. Yeah, it was stupid. Like that, But like people would post an MP3 of like, fucking a local band from Boston or something that nobody had heard of, but you just fucking click download. It would take fucking two hours to download the long <laughs> song and you listen to it. And half of them were trash, but half of them were really good. But I know like just doing things like that, I'd find bands like on Broken Wings and then um, like um, I think Throwdown released a DVD where mm-hmm. you could just watch those dudes on tour. And like, you know, the early, early Shinto was very much just a bunch of young dudes trying to emulate what they saw on the internet with Bury Your Dead, Throwdown, On Broken Wings, stuff like that. Even even in to the extent where, like, you know, American bands had mosh crews and stuff like that, and it's like our friends need to wear fucking the same colour shorts and mosh to every song that we play. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was also interesting because, I mean, I remember that time quite vividly with the Australian scene because there was also 
you know, we're talking about a time when metalcore was a big thing. So everyone was trying to do the, you know, clean singing choruses. And there were those bands, like you said, in pockets of the country. But you guys were, you doubled down on that mosh. Um, yeah, 100%. And that's, it's funny you say that because we had a, we had a couple of friends, like, like I said, when me and my mate were trying to get people involved in the band, we, we'd already been on that track to discovering all these, like, you know, local bands over in America doing like the heavy mosh shit. And that's all we wanted to do. We wanted to be heavy. We didn't want clean vocals. And a few of our friends that got involved would be like, yeah, I think we could have some singing. And the next day we'd be like, yeah, no, he's out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm clean singing. <laughs> we ain't no kill switch. No. 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 And I love kill switch. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah. but the vision for Shinto was clear from the start. We knew what we wanted to do. What about, you know, you said earlier about how, you know, just seeing a show of like 50 odd people and that was like, that's what I wanted to achieve. But in those early stages after you get a, a show here on there, what are you looking at as a way of, you know, inspiration of breaking out? Did you think you could break out? Because we're also talking about a time when, you know, Aussie bands, even today, it, it was all just about playing your local circuit. An Aussie tour was a big far-fetched idea. Was mm. that what you guys thought? Yeah, I remember that. I remember if there was an international band touring, it was like one like a big thing, like maybe happened once, maybe twice a year, you know what I mean? Further down the line, like many years later, it would seem like there'd be three international tours at the same time all competing with each other. So a very different thing. But funny for us, it was very weird. Like it sort of blew up too quickly almost, like mm -hmm. basically in the Western Sydney area. Like I think our third show was playing to 800 people in Penrith, you know what I mean? And that was just the show that my friend threw together and was like, can you play? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. We we, we headlined it. Like our third show, we expected maybe 100 and 800 came. And then I think a month later, we did like a Battle of the Bands in Castle Hill where the winner got to play with Parkway and we won that and we got to play in Castle Hill with Parkway. But then Parkway wanted to, we're going to do the regional tour through Penrith as well. So like you guys play that as well. So it just went from literally like, you know, playing to a few friends and stuff to like our third show and on, we're just playing these huge crowds. So the, the hunger grew from there immediately, but it was also like an unrealistic sort of like fucking, oh, you know, if you can play three shows and get a thousand people come out, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> we would like to learn that's it's not quite how it works. No, but I mean, also you say about that kind of buzz, you guys were a band that I remember when, you know, skip a little bit forward, Cold Streets came out and there was, internet was starting becoming a thing and it was starting to be very prevalent and that album um, or extended EP, it depends what people want to technically call it, got a lot of buzz on the Australian yeah. scene. Um, what do you think made that buzz? Was it the fact that you were one of the few mosh bands or was it just right time, right situation? I think right time, right situation, but also, like I said before, the early Shinto was just us emulating what we saw overseas and what we thought was cool. And then I think by Cold Streets, we've been around for about three, four years. Mm. We knew what we were at that point and what, what we how we liked to write our songs and stuff like that. Like I think the proof is that we had we had like eight songs or whatever it was put together and we we're about to go record. And Pilks from Dogfight Records basically said to us, like, why don't you write one or two more songs quickly, throw it on there and we can we can make it an album. And I think we we ended up getting one more song together, nine, 
So we had nine in total. But that song that we quickly threw together before we went to Melbourne was Frozen, mm. which was basically the song that everyone, even to this day, still will tell me that is their favourite song, you know what I mean? And it's like it's proof that we were learning who we were and what we wanted to do by we could just quickly whip together our fucking arguably our best song just before we recorded, you know what I mean? Yeah, it is. So, it's an absolute classic. I mean, but it's also funny that... <clears throat> you're one of those bands that each album or release also divides opinion amongst the diehard fans. And Cold Cold Streets, I think, is probably sometimes overlooked by a lot of the later fans of the band because it was was mosh, but there seemed to be a natural sense of melody. Now, the question I've got about that release is, you know, you said how you kind of just whipped it together. Was it was that how the early few releases were for you guys? You just got it done, didn't care, didn't overanalyze? Not really. I feel like we, um, oh, real early on, we probably would have just, whatever we wrote would have been like, that sounds cool. Yeah, let's just go with that. And there would be towards closer to Cold Streets, we're probably a bit more picky about how we wrote things and what we released. But, um, yeah, around the time that we recorded Frozen, we were really honing in on how we wrote things and it was it wasn't the most orthodox way like but i think well wasn't the most orthodox compared to now like a lot of bands now will go into a studio and sort of write that way and then learn the songs whereas over and over and over and over until you know we fucking couldn't play anymore and just every time we played through we'd switch up one thing just writing did feel like a long process but frozen felt easy i guess when joel wrote the riffs to that and tron put the drums over it i think we must have just been like no nah, that's it that's good and i would have just thrown the lyrics down not long after that it was it was it was a mad time it looks like from the outside looking in because you get that parkway well you get that headliner show you do some parkway shows and then you guys seem to really start just appearing on every kind of show going around, whether it was an international show, as in, you know, international act in Australia, or an Australian mm-hmm. lineup that was getting around. Did you feel like the momentum at this stage and the Australian scene was pretty hot at the time? Yeah, I do. I, I just remember always, like, it was almost every weekend we had a show, even if it was fucking three-hour drive away or something like that. We always had something going on, and all the shows had really good payers, particularly around that time. Like the turnouts were really sick. I just, and yeah, we were constantly trying to get on tours and opportunities were sort of coming up. But I remember that was happening for a lot of our friends' bands around us too. It was just a really hot time in the scene. Like, um, yeah, everyone seemed to be doing something and everyone was just raising the bar every fucking week, you know? Without jumping too far forward, what do you think, what do you, you know, in hindsight, what do you think's changed now? Because, um, older heads i don't want listeners to think that we sound bitter about what's going on now but i definitely think back then was a very hot vibrant time and i think now it doesn't feel like it is do you think there's been something that's changed maybe maybe just the progression of the internet and how easily accessible a lot of music is um again it's it's all like speculative you know what i mean like i remember i remember when we started I felt like I knew everyone at shows, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everyone was sort of like the same friendship group. And even when we went on tour, like you'd, you'd shop in Melbourne, all your friends would be there that you'd met on the previous tour and and so on and so forth. And I think the further along it got, and this is just my perspective, maybe I'm wrong, but the further along it, like 
more recently I've found like there's just a lot of separate circles and there are a mm. lot like, you know, one separate circle be like, oh, I don't listen to that type of hardcore or this type of hardcore. I think people started subdividing and being really picky. And it's a result of what we were saying before, like so many freaking tours, so much to choose from that people started being real picky about what they'd go to. And I don't know, they just stopped fucking, it seemed like everyone stopped supporting all their friends and supporting every fucking show that came out all of a sudden. I think, I think that's coming back now from what I've, from what I've seen. I mean, obviously COVID put a, mm. put a stake in things, but I remember just before COVID, I went to a, a terror show and it just felt like everyone that I'd ever met through hardcore was there. Yeah, I think something also that, I mean, was back then, I think Australians wanted to go and see everyone on the bill, whether they were Australian or international, and were happy to go out and see an all-Australian lineup. I think Australia went through a period where people weren't turning up for those opening one or two bands that were Australian because they thought, well, they're Australian, doesn't really matter. Um, And I think that had a roll-on effect that was hindering the scene because then a sense of community, as you said, you'd, you'd go to shows and you'd know everyone, but if no one's turning up to see the opening band, then kind of diminishes the scene a bit. It's, um, it went through. Definitely. And those dudes in the opening band are probably like, you know, no one showed up to see my band. I'm not going to go to watch their band, Mm -hmm. but you know what I mean? There's just a snowball effect. Whereas I just remember it being the complete opposite back in the day. Everyone would be at a show like, like, you know, all your, all your mates would be at loaded like crazy just all be hanging out well i mean also shinto were a band that had the camo hats and the basketball shorts <laughs> i mean yeah i mean that that and we were talking about a time when in australia also i think that was a bit big thing it was a cool thing because australia we are a small we are a small pond in the overall sea and to see that kind of americanized feeling in our scene was yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, there was a lot of haters to it, and that's understandable. There will always be hate, but I loved it. You know, you could, you see that kind of mentality that brings back community again. It's important. Yeah, heavy emphasis on friendship. I feel back then, mm. almost every song was about mates. <laughs> well, and also an interesting thing about you know Shinto is you guys always happy to brand yourself heavy, but you also were one of those bands that wasn't afraid lyrically to be pissed off um i think yeah. we had a thing in australia for a while where it wasn't really that many bands that wanted to be pissed off um in a in a sense of literally fucking pissed off was that something you guys were happy to double down on as well i mean yeah i mean the, the music was always like collectively as a group we always wanted to be as heavy as possible and stuff like that are, are, you, are you speaking lyrically yeah. pissed off yeah well yeah i guess that that all falls on me um I, it comes from a place where, you know, growing up, I'd listen to a lot of bands there, you know, like a lot of the angry music I listened to would actually make me feel good, you know, because like, you know, if you're having a shitty day or something like that and you put on some Acacia Strain, something like that, and it's like, man, this guy is just as fucking angry as I am, if not more. And just almost like, it almost makes it, a band like Acacia Strain makes being angry fun, you know what I mean? And then that in turn puts you in a good mood. And I don't know, I just wanted to sort of, have anyone who's listening to my songs and having a rough time go through the same thing, you know, like let's be pissed off together and let's have a good time. Yeah. Just no, some sick riffs. Yeah. Very sick riffs and sick lyrics yeah. too. Um, you know, the next step for the band was we can't be saved. And I remember when this came out, I loved it. I mean, I don't think you guys did anything wrong, but I remember it was so mixed response. Um, 
and it wasn't, you know, for anyone that hasn't heard the album, but you will after you've heard this, because I know you're going to go and listen to it, is when I say it was a mixed response, it wasn't because Shinto suddenly doubled down on melody and got lighter. You guys went heavier and deviated away from the sense of melody, quote unquote, as in musical melody. Um, And people, I was shocked, people were like, no, this release isn't that good. Yeah, man, very mixed response. I know, like, and what I will say is when we were recording, I, I, I initially wasn't a fan either. And mm. uh, Mitch, Mitch, so it was basically Mitch and I weren't fully on board at the start with the direction Joel and uh, Tron were were writing songs in. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're the ones writing the songs. It's not Mitch and I, other than a few ideas and obviously the lyrics. And um, that's something that they wanted to do. They, we were touring with bands like Redshaw and stuff like that, you know, and so the, the influences were there, hanging out with those dudes. They're showing us a lot more more metal stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I got to a point eventually where I was like, you know, I can, I can fight this and this can be a mess or I can be like, all right, this is what we're feeling now as a band. I'll just lyrically and rhythmically go with it and see if I can make it as good as possible. And um, I remember the first one we wrote was Sila. Mm. And if you know that song, the end of it does have that big melodic part, you know what I mean? So I was like, okay, I'm feeling this. And just somewhere along the line, it sort of just went further the other way. Not, not on purpose. We, it's not like we were trying to cut out melody, just the songs came together, how they came together. And, and, you know, is what it is, man. A lot of people didn't like it. I, I personally think it was, way too much of a shift between two records. That's why Redemption is almost like a, a circle back mm. Cold Streets, hence the the name as well, because a lot of our fans really hated the, the second record. So on the third one, we decided, you know, let's go with our... Because I guess we had to release We Can't Be Saved for the whole band to be like, all right. Mm. Yeah, that was to see the response, to be like, okay, yeah, that's right. It wasn't exactly what people were expecting so now now we'll do circle back to where we should have gone it's almost like to me i feel like the album order should have been cold streets redemption we can't be saved if that makes sense but i mean it must have been a bit of a shock to you know like i was saying you know when you get such a negative reaction from fans it's usually not because a band got heavier it's usually because they got lighter so Mm. i mean in in a way did that shock you that you know, yes, you guys weren't sure if this was the right move to make, but it wasn't a lighter move. It wasn't a more commercially accessible move, but yet the move was splitting and dividing your fan base. I don't think it shocked me. It was a, it was always going to be risky, and I think you know the risk didn't pay off the way we had hoped it would. But again, I wasn't, I wasn't really that shocked. You know what I mean? Like I knew. I knew a lot of people that were heavy on the on the melodic stuff were gonna were not gonna be super happy with it, but I know a lot of the people that were into like really heavy shit would be would be on board. And the funny thing for me is like I have such a funny memory of when that came out and how everyone hated it. Just in my head, I had it like in my head for years. It was everyone fucking hated that record. Let's just forget that record. But we're not allowed to not play Sila ever. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no one will let us play a show without playing that. But um, as well, what what surprised me is only recently I've discovered that it was some people's favourite thing that we did. Mm. 
that's that's what surprises me. Not 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 the hatred we got towards it because I knew I knew we built this fan base based on something completely different. Not completely different, but yeah, we took a left turn. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I'm I'm still you know I think it's got some absolute bangers on it, um, and the artwork's fucking sick, like sick fucking artwork. Um, did you notice, you know, if the fans are doing this reaction, what's it like for you guys during this period with turnouts for shows? Because you still at this stage, you're you guys are grinding it out still, doing as many shows as possible, popping up on shows whenever it's possible. So, were you still seeing a healthy turnout at shows, or was it starting to drip into that as well for you guys? No, the shows were good. I think the the turnouts actually got bigger, um, and we so that was working. But um, we got. We got thrown on some weird tours. Like we got, um, don't get me wrong, I love Shylud. Like it was a dream come true for me to tour mm. with them, but it was such a weird lineup, especially after the album we just released. But um, no, the crowds that were great. There was shows where Shylud thought that we should have headlined because there was just a thousand kids moshing. You know what I mean? But mm. um, but yeah, so the, the crowds didn't dwindle at all initially when that came out. It was sort of like later on, maybe towards just before Redemption, that it was started fading off a little bit. Came back for redemption and then faded off a little bit, maybe. But one thing, you know, I was definitely wanting to ask is you're a band that, you know, by the time you come into redemption, I feel like you've become very much a stable in the Australian scene. Um, mm. You know, you got over to I think Southeast Asia um, mm. at at one point. I think it was around We Can't Be Saved. You guys got over there, but you're one of those bands that it always looked like you didn't for some reason x y and z never got the chance to get to europe or america um was there opportunities or was it literally just financially because listeners may may not understand financially for an australian band it takes a lot to get over to those countries so yeah what happened with you guys with possibly getting out of the australian scene you know it was mainly financial i think um in those days sort of like it would um like Mitch and I were both working full time and then using a lot of all the money we made basically was going into the band and stuff like that. And it just touring like nationally and then doing Southeast Asia and stuff like that was, um, was, was really like by the end of it, there was never any like profit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, like, we had like, like guys in the band were taking loans off families and stuff like that to do all this, all the stuff that we were doing. The, the European opportunities were coming up and we had some sick opportunities to go over there, but it was, we were probably a little, just a little bit hesitant to jump into something like that. Because if, you know, if we're touring Australia and doing well and we're going to Southeast Asia and doing well, but we're coming back and just like, you know, scraping, scraping by evenly, Europe's going to destroy us. Mm. You know what I mean? Things like that. And, um, yeah, it's something that we would have loved to do, but we also had families to think about, stuff like that. I think you that could. amount of time off work would, would have been hard too. I think you guys would have crushed, especially the European circuit. Um, I just would have been nice to find out. Would have been nice to find out. But... That that sound that you guys have is just, you know, you can just see you guys on, you know, a European, you know, mosh hardcore metalcore fest. Um, yeah, you know, it's good to know though that you guys weren't being ignored, as in not getting offers. So it's good to hear that you guys were getting offers, because that means you can take the note that you were doing something that was getting noticed. I mean, that's important. Yeah, no, we, were 
getting, we're getting emails and uh, MySpace, Facebook messages and stuff from, from loads of people over in Europe and America. So we, we knew we knew we'd be able to do something if we got on the right bill. But yeah, I guess we just kept telling ourselves, not yet, not yet. We'll, we'll keep smashing the Australian market. We'll keep doing what we can, sell a bunch of merch, hopefully, and get some money together, and then and then we'll do it. And it just yeah, it just never came to fruition. One one thing, you know, it's jumping ahead, but I've got to ask it because it's just popped into my head is that, you know, you're the band when you guys came to a close. I think some people in Australia get to the point where they get too much of they're used to seeing a band. Do you think um, Shinto got to a point where people were just used to seeing Shinto, so they were like, I don't need to turn out for a Shinto show because. A lot of Australian bands seem to struggle when they get to a certain stretch of their career because I think Australians take them for granted. And I feel like Shinto were taken for granted. And I know that might be biased because I'm a fan, but it feels like I saw you guys at a show in Malulabar or something like this, or Moorabbin, I think it was. And it was a kind of an all, all ages like mini fest. And there was like 20 people still hanging around to see you guys. And it was like, why aren't yeah. people here? And people were like, oh, I've seen Shinto, you know, 15 times already. I don't need to see him again. It was like, really? I mean, fucking, it's Shinto, mate. Like, turn up. <laughs> Mosh. So basically I'm saying, do you think it's a, a thing that came to affect you guys because you were such hardworking, touring show band? Do you think it harmed you in a way? I mean, potentially. Um, yeah, I mean, hearing that from you, it sounds like that may have been the case. It's, it's hard for me to think back that far and think what was going through our head when we'd play shows like that and only have 20 people sticking around. I do remember, I do remember it, there being some, some sort of wake up calls along the way where I was just like, what's not working here? But we weren't sure if it was us or if it was just the way the scene was because I, I had a lot of friends in other bands that were for a long time doing really well that were dealing with the same thing. Mm. So maybe it is that maybe everyone was just getting, you know, a bit complacent with the fact that they'd probably see all these bands forever and can go whenever they want. Yeah, I also think you you were one of the few bands that kind of came in and out of different parts of the Australian influence of the scene. You know, you were coming into the scene when metalcore was kind of prevalent but when you guys started you know when you eventually left it was that kind of genty progressive post hardcore mm. was starting to come about because i remember that show i'm talking about in Morabin, you were the only mosh band on the lineup all these other bands were like i think there were stories on it um mm -hmm. these kind of you know stories the way they are like the progressive emo kind of stuff so i think that probably also hurt you guys not necessarily i mean hurt but you know what i mean you kind of had to ride so many waves you hit the nail on the head there with riding waves is i remember like and i won't name any names but so many bands changed with mm -hmm. with the trend you know yeah. what i mean and like we never did that so like whenever we like whenever mosh was like the cool thing at the time we were just playing sellouts constantly and then we went through the stage where you like you know everyone was listening like you know carpathian released isolation and everyone was into that for a while and don't mm. get me wrong isolation fantastic record i'm a fan um but we weren't going to change um and so we'd go through periods where it just wasn't cool to like shinto anymore but then it would come back and mosh would be cool again and we'd go through stages where we're just selling out again and it's not through any doing of our own it was just we saw the trends come and go 
Yeah, and I think you also got to put a feather in your cap that you guys did stay true to what you were. You know, I know you changed up a bit on albums, but you didn't change up dramatically. Um, And one, you know, Redemption in 2012 is one that um, I feel was like it hit a sweet spot. You know, you already mentioned before it was kind of what you felt should have come after Cold Streets, but did you guys take extra time um, and determination going to that release because that release feels like the perfect Shinto album. Everything in that, the recording, the mix, the lyrics, the riffs, the mosh, the guest appearances, it feels like it's it's hitting a home run every time, every track. I think it's um I think it's a credit to Shane from Electric Sun. Like we we definitely took more time with it. But the thing with with we can't be saved. We we really wanted. Zeus to mix and master it as he did Acacia Strain and some other bands that we were massive fans of but we couldn't afford to go over to America and record with him so we went to Shane and basically said we want to record this album with you we're going to send it to Zeus to mix and master it what ended up happening was Zeus sent Shane a list of things that he had to do and how he had to record it and and Shane was way out of his comfort zone doing these sort of things they just weren't how he normally operates so I think maybe some of the production there um, sort of suffered as a result. It was just way too too many fucking people not in their comfort zone. And maybe when Zeus got the the tracks, it wasn't exactly what he'd sort of wanted. And what happened after that was we we went back to Shane just to do a pre-production, and we just recorded like uh, just a pre-production version of Ghost and a couple other songs we didn't release, and. Um, that's when we saw Shane just basically having control over the whole thing. And in a couple of days, we were just like, fuck, this sounds way better than like, this is more like how we wanted the last record to sound, but we don't need to spend 10 plus thousand dollars getting Zeus involved. Shane Mm -hmm. can do this, you know what I mean? And then, so we went and we went and had a couple of sit downs with Shane and said, we're going to do our next album. We want you to do everything, blah, blah, blah. And he actually, um, we spent so much time on it. He actually, he had a fucking crazy idea in the middle of mixing and he ended up rewiring his whole board to go through analog rather than digital and mixed it that way. And just, yeah, it came out fucking awesome. Oh, it's a fucking slamming album, man. I mean, I hadn't heard it for probably a couple of months and I put it on yesterday or the day before and just like bangers. Like it, um, you know, the, the two guests are one I wanted to ask about, you know, I know, I know how you got Frankie on the show, uh, on the album. But, I mean, how did you organise Frankie and Jonathan of, of On Broken Wings? Can you tell the listeners how you lined up two absolute stellar additions for the recording as well? Well, we got John from the same tour. He came out and did mm. merch for a mirror on that tour. But the like I said to you before, like On Broken Wings is one of those super early bands that we, we emulated ourselves after in, in the start. And um, funnily enough, we're sitting on the tour bus one night and um, we're talking about like first tattoos and stuff like that. And John's sitting next to me and I looked at him and I said, speaking of first tattoos, and I pulled pulled the back of my shirt down and I had the on broken wings, heart with wings tattoo. And that was my first tattoo I got in my mate's bedroom. And he fucking lost his mind and just started showing us all this un- unreleased on broken wings stuff that he'd been working on. And yeah, we just stayed in touch after that. And I was like, man, you need to sing on our next record because crazy thing is like everyone knows Frankie and like after the album came out, everyone's like, holy shit, you got Frankie from a mule. That's the biggest thing ever. But in the, 
internally in the band, like John Blake was like the massive one for us. He is. He, I mean, I'm a big fucking on Broken Wings fan as well. And, you know, he's the one that I, they both fit their songs, you know, independently as great as each other. But the fact that you can say you've had on Broken Wings, I mean, it's like, like that's fucking big. I think my favourite night as a, like, on the whole crazy ride with this band was when we played Melbourne on the Mule Tour and we we covered a Lazarus Envy by Broken Wings and John Blake came and sang it and I just went into the crowd and started moshing to my friends playing one of my favourite songs with John Blake singing it. It was just fucking one of those pinch me moments. How did the how did redemption go for you guys with um, the momentum? Did it did it pick back up? Did you guys get a reception from everyone that they just all liked it? Because it must have been really well received. Yeah, no, it was it was well received. I like of the, all the people that I spoke to or the, all, all I saw online, everyone was really happy with it. I know a lot of the people that we lost doing We Can't Be Saved may have never come back. I think my cousin was telling me he was in line at a hate breed show or something like that and he was wearing a Shinto shirt and he said so many people were coming up to him and going, I love that first album, but the second album, shit. And he goes, have you heard the third one? And he said, most people didn't even know we had a third one. So, <laughs> so, there, is, <laughs> so there is that, but... Everyone from from all accounts and that I came across, people people were vibing it. Well, that's why I'm so surprised. You know, that was in 2012, and it was around 2014 that you guys kind of like, you know, you hung up the mic and you guys put away the instruments um, and you know called it quits because that felt such such a home run of an album. Like I keep saying home run, but it literally was, um, and it felt like what was next was going to be so exciting. So why, you know, two years after that release, maybe just under two years, did you guys decide, look, we're going to pull the plug? Um, for me personally, I um, from the start of this band, I got my elect- I was doing my electrical apprenticeship. I was always working full time, you know. So, and I have, my, my now wife has been with me through the whole ride. Um, all my time off from work was spent touring, recording, playing shows. And I think well, at that point we were 10 plus years in and it just mm. was like, you know, I've never taken, I've never taken my wife on a holiday. Like it's always, she's, she stood by me like while I sort of lived my dream and, um, and it just didn't feel right anymore for her to miss out. And I ended up thinking, you know, like I've worked so hard and then I'm, I think we should, I'd rather buy a house than buy boxes and boxes of merch this year. You know, I'd, <laughs> I'd rather start taking, taking the missus on holidays and stuff like that. And so that, and that didn't just happen overnight. That was sort of eating at me for a while. And I was thinking, you know, like, I'm going to ride this out. I'm going to ride this out see how this album cycle goes and everything. And um, I think one time I was speaking to Mitch and it just so happened that we were both sort of feeling the same way. So we got the boys together and we were like, look, this point in our lives, this is, we want to, you know, concentrate on some some other stuff, some family stuff, some work stuff. You know, I went and I went and started my business. So yeah, it was it was it was a progressive thing. It wasn't like oh, this album didn't work out, we're done. It was just things like that. I've been doing it for a long time, and you know, I wasn't making any money doing it, and it was just time to stop thinking about myself and and you know, not that I wasn't thinking about these boys. They'd been like my family forever, but you know, it was time to think about my wife and what she wanted to do in life. 
It's a, it's commendable, man, because it it's natural for people to grow up, and you also probably are reaching the stage of your life that not only are you realizing that you know in many ways music is a selfish thing, as, as much rewarding as it is, it is selfish and impacts you know your partners, your families, but you also realize you're probably coming to a stage where there's not much else you can do. Um, you can mm. only push that boat out so far and persuade, push, kind of push with it continually and continually and spend thousands on merch and thousands mm. on tours um, before you have to think maybe it's time to grow up. That's not saying you can't be a kid forever, but, you know, it's commendable. Yeah. Um, and it's mature, you know. you know. As much as we don't want to grow up and not mosh anymore, we, we all do grow up. Um, you know. See it. Um, what was it like, the reaction, though, because... You're a band that, like I told you before I started recording, a lot of Aussie fans of the show keep asking for a Shinto episode, so they've got it now, so you guys listening are happy. But, you know, was there a a bit of a shock reaction from the fans? Because you guys do have a bit of a diehard fan base. Yeah, and you know what? Like, as, like as much as I always loved the fan base and always and like never once took them for granted and stuff like that. I didn't really realize how fucking much the band meant to them until only recently. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's crazy to think that all these years later, people still give a shit. If that makes sense. Like when you're, when you're there touring and doing the fucking miles and releasing music and stuff like that, like and everyone's on board, that's one thing, but it's a, it's a completely other thing to, be so many years removed from it and think there's still there's still people talking about us and still I'll, I'll run into people and they'll they'll find out who I am and I was part of Shinto and they'll they'll all tell me these crazy fucking stories about when they were when they were 12 years old seeing us and how much it meant to them and shit you know what I mean like so yeah it's it's it, I mean it sucks it sucks that I didn't realize how much it meant to them at the time. I just thought, you know, everyone's into this music, everyone's into all these bands, but it's, it's really cool to find out now how much it meant to them. And that's, and that's a big reason for why we, we were going to, and we'll still eventually do some more shows. I think it's something that not a lot of bands get that the, that you guys have, you know, in a lot of parts of the world, I'm sure, but in Australia in general, Bands come and go and there'll be a moment of excitement around that band and then it just kind of fades to nothing um, or fades to black if you want to uh, use your Metallica references. But um, but you are a band that, as you say, has left a legacy and I think it's also because you were a band for so long. A very common thing in Australia is bands come, they do their thing for two to four years and then they disappear. You guys are around for around 10 years, maybe a little bit over. I mean, that's rare in yeah. itself. And, you know, there's like, like even now I'll get people tag me in videos on the internet of like local bands covering Shinto. Mm. It's like these, these dudes are like fucking 22, 25 years old. And it's like, man, how old were they when we were playing? You know what I mean? And it's like, then you'll speak to them. You'll be like, a couple was sick. And they're like, man, we started a band because we came and saw you and it was sick. You know what I mean? And I'm just, they're the things that mean a lot to me at this point. Well, it's all because they enjoyed the camo hats and basketball shorts. So <laughs> that's it. That's it's, it. It's the only reason. Yeah, they just like the attire. Um, so you mentioned in there, um, obviously planning on coming back or thinking of coming back, and you know it was first thing. How annoyed have you been 
the, the fact that you had the show with Redshaw, show with Confession, or shows with Confession, uh, lined up, looking to get back out on the stage and, you know, get your throwdown moments on and mosh moving and all this shit goes on and now all these shows are, like, up in the air, rescheduled, postponed. I mean, that's got to fucking piss you off, doesn't it? Oh, man, at first it was tough because I think the the first confession show, I think we were a week away from it mm-hmm. and we basically shut everything down. I think day by day it was like you can only have a 1,000 people and the next day you can only have 500 and the next day it was completely shut off. And that was tough because I think it was it was two years from the phone call I got from Mitch. He was speaking to Crafter and Craft was like, we're going to do shows, you should do it. And we were like, Fuck, if we're ever going to do it, that's a that's a decent show to jump on. So we'll do that. And then yeah, it was two years of back and forth trying to talk certain people into doing it. Some people didn't want to do it. You know, we had to get other guys on board to to fill in for a couple of the guys. Well, one of the guys wasn't going to do it. And then it was just and then yeah, one of the one of the guys that was filling in couldn't do it anymore. So we got more fill ins, and it was just that there was so many. So many sleepless nights trying to figure out if we're even going to be able to fucking do this. And then we eventually got got it together. We were practicing here at my office like twice a week. And it just felt like two years of just – and I feel like a couple of weeks before those confession shows, I, I was saying to the boys, I was like, this is the best we've ever sounded. Like this is going to be fucking incredible. We were all really excited. I'd gotten into the shape of my life at that point and just, you know, like I was like really – really ready to do it a lot had gone into it and then to just have that pulled away from you was really hard at first i think it took me a week to sort of you know bring myself back to you know there's a lot of people more people suffering than our silly little show and i haven't haven't really given much thought to it since when it happens it'll happen hopefully sooner than later but yeah yeah but i mean for international listeners um one thing we have in australia that's confusing is our Music industry is still being held back and impacted, but you can go and fucking watch the origin without a stress. Like, yeah, it's quite weird. You can't go to a moss show, but you can go and six, sit with sixty thousand people watching New South Wales versus Queensland. Um, that yeah, for, no, for me, that's the you know that's the weirdest thing. I don't understand. I can understand you know making everyone safe and making sure everything is in the proper protocols and alignments and everything, but that doesn't make sense. Um, now, before these came up, were there any other talks of coming back for shows? I mean, you, uh, without blowing smoke, you know, you'd be a band that is constantly being rumoured for things like Unified and Invasion Fest and these kind of things that, you know, were you ever approached for any of these, you know, let's get Shinto back for a one-off show at Unify kind of thing? Not so much approached. Spoke to a few people that are involved in it and um, said, look, um, you just let me know if you want us and I'll make it happen sort of thing. And that, that sort of never came about. But there were there were a few chats when it came up to 10 years since Cold Streets was released. I think it was 2018. Mm-hmm. 27, we were sort of having chats about maybe re-recording all of Cold Streets plus a new song and just releasing that on vinyl. But um, it was all just talks. Nothing really ever eventuated from it. But, yeah, I mean, like leading up to these confession shows and all that, there was always there was always the discussions, and that's why I think when Crafter approached us, we were like, all right, sweet, let's do this. Um, so everything will eventually, for fans at home that are saying, well, when's it going to happen, there will eventually 
come a time when you guys would be able to say everything's safe, we can do these shows, won't you? Yeah, we're not we're not going to do anything until you know the we can do it the way we want to do it. You know, like there's a lot of bands that are doing sit down shows and stuff mm. like that. That's definitely not something we're interested in. I don't think. I don't think Shinto works if there's a family eating schnitzels in the first row, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Just having their pub, that, having yeah, their pub yeah, feed. And I don't know how long it's going to be until that mm. that sort of happened because, you know, the, the whole part, I've always proud, like I've always prided ourselves on the live shows way better than listening to us on, on the record. That's, that's always been my thing. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a part of any live show. That's not a hundred percent what we want it to be. Yeah, side note, um, for anyone who hasn't been to a Shinto show or wonders what he means by it's better than the thing, Shinto are the Aussie fucking, you know, like bury your dead mosh kind of band. Like the violence fucking comes in that pit and, you know, it's epic. If you're not into it, you don't have to get into it, but you just want to sit back and watch it. So it'd be a bit weird if it was like a pub feed show, people are eating their schnitzel and then... When the, you guys are in between songs, are going and throwing a few bucks in the pokies. I don't think that would work for a Shinto um, show. You talk there about, you know, there's been talks and just talks about like reprints or vinyl pressings and stuff. Um, would you guys ever consider, you know, with the way the industry is now, a lot of bands just do singles or do a three-track EP. Is it something you guys would ever consider maybe releasing you know maybe like 18 visions releasing three tracks that were covers or something like that man absolutely i mean i can only talk from my from what i think and i'd i'd be ready and willing you know what i mean um it's it's one thing to say you're keen to do it it's another thing entirely to get three other dudes completely on board and then then all trying to figure out when who has time to all get together and actually do the thing you know what i mean that's why i say it's all been talks we've all we all sort of expressed interest in doing stuff, especially in the first lockdown. We started like being like, we should just fucking write music. And everyone was like, yeah, let's do that. But it's a whole other thing to actually start putting the wheels in motion. Mm. Mm. As it, like you said, it, it's easy to say it. It's a bit different doing it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility that we will do something and release some stuff. I mean, some people might need a bigger nudge than the others, but it's something we can definitely do. I mean, I know I'm keen for it. I know a couple of the dudes are keen for it. Um, whether whether we get it over the line, we'll we'll see. But you know, most of us would be happy to do something like that. Especially now, like career-wise, we've all sort of like you know found our feet and doing doing our thing. So it's like that was the main goal after Shinto. You know, like set up for me personally, setting up my business, getting married, buying a house, all that stuff sort of out of the way now. Now it's like, you know, if, I, if I've got some spare time to play a show here and there, I'll write, I'll write some songs, record some songs. Fuck yeah, let's do it. Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, let's do, I want to hear a Backstreet Boys cover or a Hanson cover or something. Moshed. Um, I'll be down for a Hanson cover. Fuck yeah, Mbop. Imagine the pit call. <laughs> fuck yeah. Mbosh. Mbosh. Um, so one, before we, you know, we've got a segment coming up to wrap things up. I wanted, this is probably the one that's going to make you think the most. If we're saying, you know, in 10 years' time, that's it, you've never done anything else, but you've you've had the run you've had, what would you like to think and have people say the legacy and the forever memory of Shinto is? Like, what would you like people to forever take away 
as the overall memory of Shinto? Loaded question, I know. No, it's, it's a good one. Um, I guess the obvious answer is that we were fucking heavier than everyone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but for the most part, I, I, the things I'm most proud of and would love to be remembered by is that through all the trends, we stayed the same and we put everything into our live show to make sure that that was even better than what we put out on record because everyone's seen a band live that sucked that they thought would be great because the CD was great and I never wanted to be that. Yeah, fuck yeah. No, never. I mean, like I told you before, I think I've seen you eight or nine times um, and you never thought, oh, the boys are going through the motions. Um, it was like, yeah, no. fuck yeah, Shinto. No, it was, so, it was so easy with those guys on stage. Everyone just knew exactly what everyone was doing and where each other was. It was just, yeah, it was a piece of cake. Well, look, look, I'm excited for whenever the right time comes that you guys are at least doing some shows when the time's right. I think it's great. Um, You know, like you said, life has had to move on, but you guys have now got life in a situation where you can do those occasional shows here and there. Even if it's just one every couple of years, at least it's one every couple of years. And that's exciting for fans and um, just also yourselves that you guys are able to dust off the cobwebs and, um, you know, throw down for a bit. Yeah, for sure. Now, dude, we are going to wrap things up with a little segment that 169 other guests have had. Now, this segment's either going to make you or break you, but I think think you'll be fine. Now, what it's called, it's called Pick Your Poison. What happens here is I give you two options. You pick your favourite of the two. You do not need to justify your answer. But a lot of people are going to be hearing this. So if you're worried about that answer you gave and what their reaction would be, you can justify why you've given that answer. All right? All righty. All right. Pizza or burger? Pizza. Okay. Ribs or brisket? Ribs. Okay. But beef short ribs. Ooh. Okay. Um... Chicken or beef? I'm going to say chicken. Okay. Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway? Chinese. Okay. Uh, Mars bar or Snickers? Mars bar. Okay. Soft taco or crunchy taco? Soft all day. Okay. Taco or nacho? Taco. Are you having guac or hold the guac? I'm having guac. Oh, yeah. Now, smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Ooh, I think I'll go crunchy. I would have gone smooth for most of my earlier life, but I'm a crunchy man now. Wow, so you're a sadist. You like ripping up your bread is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. Let's. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's okay. Um, coffee or tea? Coffee. Beer or whiskey? Ooh. Ooh. Beer in summer, whiskey in winter. Nice answer. Uh, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Now, you're going to have your last ever meal on this earth. Do you want to have it at home or out at a restaurant? Ooh, that's a hard one. I think at home. 
Okay. Last one ever at home. A uh, new movie comes out. You're going to watch it at the cinema or watch it on the couch at home? It depends on the movie. If it's if it's something I'm truly interested in, definitely the cinema. Okay. Um, you're going to spend the day at the beach or spend the day at the snow? Ooh. Give me the beach. Okay. PlayStation or Xbox? PlayStation. Cat or dog? Dog. Okay. Actually, scratch Ooh. that, cat. Ooh. <laughs> I've got both, but my dogs are pissing me off at the moment. <laughs> yeah, look, mine always piss me off. Um, <laughs> Undertaker or Kane? Undertaker, come on. Okay. All right, Triple H or HBK? Oh. HBK, I've got to go HBK. Okay. Uh, Eddie, Guer- Eddie Guerrero or Chris Benoit? Eddie Guerrero. Okay. Rollins or Reigns? Rollins. Hogan or Warrior? Hogan. Okay, okay, nice. Um, Terminator or Predator? Oh, that's tough. I'm going to have to go Terminator though. Okay. Rambo or Rocky? Rambo. James Bond or Jason Bourne? I'll have to go with the OG, James Bond. Nice, nice. South Park or Simpsons? Simpsons. Okay, now we're getting into the music ones. Slayer or Pantera? Pantera. Terra or Madball? Ooh. Ooh. I'm going to go Madball. Ooh. But I love Terra too. Uh, Throwdown or Hatebreed? Oh, man. I knew there'd be one that would break you. That might have been the one that yeah, broke you. That, that's a tough one. Um, I'll I'll have to go hate breed. Okay, Metallica or Megadeth? Metallica. Um, Manson or Zombie? Zombie. Okay. Uh, rugby Union or Rugby League? Rugby League. Okay, Manchester United or Manchester City? Fuck them both. Okay, who do you follow? I forgot. Not Tottenham, Gronk. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> Arsenal. Yeah. Oh, the life of me. I, you know, on a side note, people, we're recording this the day after England, or the morning, afternoon after England lost the penalty shootout. You know the main reason I wanted England to win the World Cup, uh, European Cup? What? It was the only way we we're going to keep Harry Kane. <laughs> I'm not even joking. If he had won, if he had won the Euros, he would have been like, "Fuck this! I don't mind being a mid-table team. I'll stay with Spurs because I've won the Euros." Now, he's definitely fucking leaving. It's just fucked, <laughs> fucked. And we got another, we got another fucking Portuguese coach. God, I can't can't wait for this to happen. Anyway, side note, um, I'm used to picking bad teams. Um, 30-odd years of supporting Spurs, and it's never been enjoyable. Um, when you're playing a show, stage dives or mic grabs? Mic grabs. Ooh, nice. Um, you know, now you're old as fuck. When you go to a show, are you watching it from the pit or by the sound desk? Uh, oh, look, sound desk. Okay. Sound desk at this point. 
Now, this one um, is the second last one, but let's imagine, let's go back to like 2010, okay? Would you rather mm-hmm. tour for the rest of your life or record music for the rest of your life? Record music, hands down. Okay, now the last one is the only triple one, and this one is your favorite album. I'm going to give it to you. But the way I give it to you is the only way you can consume it. Do you want it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Favorite album? Mm-hmm. Give it to me on vinyl. Fuck yeah, nice. Um, now, dude, first thing, thank you for giving me your time, your energy, um, and just your afternoon. Really, really appreciate this. Um, the funniest thing is your face froze about five minutes in. So um, I've just been looking at your frozen face. So I couldn't <laughs> couldn't tell. I couldn't, you know, I was just kind of like, yeah, I'll just keep staring at the phone because maybe he can still see me fine. Um, but Sorry about that. it's not your fault, mate. It's This is modern technology, man. It happens with Skype and Zoom all the time. Um, but uh, that was, dude, that was great. Uh, you know, touched on a lot of things I didn't expect. Um, so, look, thank you. Like, really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. It was, it was good fun. But, yeah, look, uh, means a world. Look, go have a good afternoon and you're a legend and um, I'll stay in touch. Oh, wonderful, mate. Appreciate it. All right, ciao. Bye.
So that was my chat with Dave of Shinto Katana, and at the end there, the first track you heard was Unforgiven, second track you heard was Outlaws, both of those tracks are from the band's album Redemption, third track you heard was Homicide Note, which is from the release We Can't Be Saved, and the final track, the absolute legendary track, is titled Frozen, and is from their release called Cold Streets. Now's the part of the show where I spark that thing inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So if you enjoyed that music or you enjoyed the conversation, now's your chance. Get online. Consume the fuck out of that music. Download it. Stream it. Whatever you gotta do. Deep dive. If you're into physicals, I'm sure you can find a CD floating around somewhere online. Make sure you grab one if you're into physicals. If you're into merch... You might be able to find some of that too. I know the band were advertising some for a while on their Facebook, so make sure you go on there, have a squiz, get yourself a shirt, a hoodie, or some shorts. 
I need to take this moment to thank Dave again. Thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Stay in touch. Let's do another fucking chat soon. And that's it. That's the Mosh Zone episode 170. Done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget... You can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.